The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you so much for bringing us here today. God, I ask that you would be fully with with the sermon today with Scott. And um, Lord, that he would only say what you, with the words that you have given him. God, I ask that everyone here would know um, that you brought them here to, to learn about you and that we would not leave this morning without being changed or learning something about your character. God, that, um, that we would know that you do, not, um, you do not want us to feel shame or guilt about these kinds of subjects, Lord, that you have forgiven us fully and um, that we would truly believe that. And in your name I, I pray. Amen. Amen. Surprise, I'm not Scott. I <laughs> um, hope you're doing well this morning. Thanks for making it out. It's, there, there's, there's those excuses we make in our mind, right? When there's rain outside, when there, it's a little bit colder than usual. So I'm thankful that you're here this morning. And, um, you know, we've been talking about this, this idea of being together for our city and it was great because, you know, we, during one of those prayer nights, I was praying with Jack, who, who's been a member of First Baptist for a long time. We're sitting here, and we're just praying. And he, he brought up the scripture from John 12, uh, 24, where it says that there's a seed that needs to die so that you can see much fruit. And what I took away from that was, you know, that I need to die to myself. Jack felt he needed to die to himself. And there's something that happens in the kingdom of God when we die to ourselves, and then there's great fruit that happens, right? Because the gospel is all about dying to ourselves. And today, one of the scriptures that we're talking about is not an easy passage to take in unless we die to ourselves. And that's the type of church, when we talk about being together for our city, that's what we're talking about. A church that continually dies to self and lives to Christ. Amen? That's what we want to be about. And so one of the ways that the women have been doing the, the discipleship pieces is doing the real talk. And I, and I think that's amazing. And one of the things that, that I want to do with some of the guys here, um, if you're interested, this is, I'm just putting it out there. Is that we're going to go through a book called The Cure. And really it talks about the way the gospel meets us in our everyday lives. And so February 26th, Right after prayer, 645, right here, we're going to meet, give you the book, have some food, and then I'm going to share with you a little bit about what we're going to do, okay? And so it's a really easy thing that you can jump in on, okay? Only thing is, you got to read a book, and it's only 120 pages, and it's spaced, you know, like, forgot, it's good, like, you know, it's, it's good. So it's not a whole lot, but it's very impactful, and so I want to invite you out. 
February 26, 6.45, and we're going to send out some emails, and I just want you to RSVP so we can get enough food and I can get enough books for you, but we want to go through that and really help you to grow in your relationship with Jesus, okay? And so the guys have something too. Now, we've been in this series, The Sermon on the Mount, and our text today is Matthew 5, 27 through 30, and this in particular is a text where Jesus is very specific, very specific, And he's specific on the area of lust in our lives. And so the message today is entitled, How God Heals Lust. How God Heals Lust. Now, over the past months, we've been studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we looked at how this sermon gives us marks or indicators of what a true Christian looks like. And throughout the sermon, Jesus uses the term, the kingdom of heaven, And as he uses that description, the kingdom of heaven, um, what he's saying is these are people who've been radically saved by God, have come into the kingdom of God, and now are living in a way where they are citizens of heaven. They're citizens of heaven. They, They look different. They're unique because of what God has done in their life. There's been a transformation that's happened from the inside out, truly a new creation. And this is important because many times when people look at the church, they don't see much of a difference from the rest of the world. And so that's what we've been talking about, right? Like the, the, the world looks at the church and they say, well, you guys are hypocrites because you don't live this out, the teachings that you say Jesus said. And so again, we don't want to be that type of church and we want to look at what Jesus specifically says. And Jesus does not shy away from the topic of lust and marriage. And here's what he asks. How are we different? How are we different than the rest of the world? You know, there was this letter that was written. Uh, many scholars believe it was written as early as AD 130. It was a letter to Diognetus. And um, here's what this letter was. It was, a, it was an apologetic of the differences between the Christian life and the way the rest of the world was living. And there's one specific area in this letter where he talks about marriage. And so he says this, they, they marry like everyone else. And they have children but they do not destroy their offspring. It's important, right? (laughs) Some of you felt like that, like, I don't know. But um, they share a common table, but not a common bed. They share a common table, but not a common bed. And so open with their lives, sharing the love of Christ with others, but very exclusive in the way they express the type of love Jesus is talking about today. And so, as a Christian, as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, how is our thought life and our marriage different from the rest of the world? Right, Jesus' answer is this, through purity. Through purity. You see, even though purity may seem to our culture as archaic, that's just kind of an archaic thing. It's what every human heart desperately needs. It's what you want. It's what you desire. It's something deep down in there that you know is right. See, it's because God has designed you for it. And so Jesus addresses this in in today's uh, text, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, 
August 2015, Relevant Magazine came out with an article that described our current generation. It says the statistics are staggering. Nine out of 10 boys and six out of 10 girls are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. The first exposure of porn for men is 12 years old on average. 68% of young men watch it at least once a week. The list goes on and on. Porn is ravaging our culture and the accessibility of it is beyond scary. Right, what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm not going to avoid the hard things, but I'm going to pull back the curtain and show what the human heart really looks like. Again, Jesus is bringing us face to face with the reality that we must lament, like the writer in Proverbs 20, verse nine. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Right, as as all of us approach this today, all of us have to say this, Lord, help. Help us, Lord. We must come like Isaiah who said, I'm a, a man of unclean lips coming to a people of unclean lips. I am unclean. We are unclean. And so as Christians, how can we be different? Well, Eden de Gid writes this, he says, with enough trouble, someone could keep pure on the outside, but no one is pure inside. Jesus is our perfect substitute. His purity is complete, inside and out. He has lived the perfect life here on earth for us. In Jesus, we have been given the purity of heart we need. That's what the Christian message is all about, finding our purity, our righteousness in what Jesus has done, not in what we do. And so today, as we come to this very difficult topic, where we have to say, there are so many areas where we are guilty. We can come to the cross, we can come to Christ and know that there is forgiveness, that there's healing. So again, in in the area of purity, we cling tightly to Jesus and his work as we dive into today's text. I wanna give a preface. Today we'll touch on the topics of sex and marriage as is in this text but it's not exhaustive, right? There's plenty more that can be said about this. It's not an exhaustive message. This could be a whole series. We could go on for a long time on this, but here's the thing. I do not take this lightly because I know it brings up for many of us hurts, pains, wounds, whether they be self-inflicted or inflicted upon us by other people. And I want you to know that I prayerfully, with great care and concern for you today, want to share the truth of the gospel in a way where God brings healing in your life. See, Jesus and his grace have the power to overcome our past, our present, and give us hope for the future. Give us hope for the future. And so today we can address this topic knowing that Christ is enough. And I want to invite you into that and be able to be honest with ourselves. And so the text is this, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. And just to give a recap, last week we discussed the effects of anger in our lives and the dangers of it. This week we are discussing the damaging effects of lust. Again, today's passage gets very personal because it confronts us in an area of our lives that that many of us have marked off as that's too personal, that's off limits, or it's too taboo. 
But Jesus does not avoid or mince words in this area because he does not want us to compartmentalize our faith, to compartmentalize our faith, and for us to think that our faith only applies to these certain areas, but not every area of life. You see, God's kingdom permeates every area of our lives, even this area. And Jesus is not looking at the outside, but he's looking at the heart. He is looking on the inside. And so what he's doing here is he's taking the seventh commandment. Last week we looked at the sixth commandment that he took. Now we're looking at the seventh commandment from the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14. And just last, like last week, he's not discarding it, but he is deepening it. He is deepening this. He's revealing the heart. You see, God desires to heal our heart not just our behavior, not just the outside. And so how does God heal us in the area of lust? Well, in today's passage, we're gonna see three ways that he points to, and and Jesus points to these uh, specifically throughout this text. So we're gonna break this down today. The first one is this, God's design. Second is our distortion. And third is drastic measures. God's design, our distortion, drastic measures. And so the first one is this, God's design. Look at verses 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Now, the key to understanding this section in particular is seeing the difference between it was said and I say to you. During this time, the rabbis were attempting to limit God's command, lower his standard, You shall not commit adultery. Jesus is restoring the sanctity of human sexuality and personhood and marriage. To understand this better, commentator John Stott writes, he says, in their their view, they and their disciples kept the seventh commandment, provided that they avoided the act of adultery itself. Thus, they gave a conveniently narrow definition, definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. But Jesus taught differently. Jesus taught differently. You see, in many ways, this same thing happens today. This same thing happens today. You see, for our culture, we say, you've heard it said before, that that pornography is a small thing. Sex is just an appetite. Sex outside of marriage is just a part of life. You know, marriage is a passe thing. Divorce is no big deal. Marriage is how I define it. Jesus, again, is restoring the integrity of God's commands, the intention in which he created humanity and the holiness of who he is. And so we're coming, again, to God's word and what he says. So verse 28, but I say to you, you see this commandment, that Je- this statement that Jesus says is not just about content, it's about authority. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's not about just content, it's about authority of what he's about to say. I'm still trying to teach this to my kids. Right, so one of the things that we we talked about today was I said, you know, when mommy or daddy say something, it's not just a suggestion, right? It's not something you just say, okay, yeah, cool, thanks mom and dad for that suggestion. 
But this is actually like an authoritative thing where like I'm the parent and you're the child and these are things that we kind of follow through on, right? And so the same thing is true. Like we, we can kind of take these things that Jesus says is just like a suggestion for our lives or we can take it as the commands of what he's saying. And so this is, this is not just content, but it's authority. And so as we understand that God is the authority because he designed humanity, rom- romantic relationships, and sexuality within his good design, his good design, God designed sex specifically for covenant love, not for self-indulgent lust. And see, we, we can know this because back in Genesis 2, 23 through 25, we get a glimpse of the first wedding. You know who's officiating the first wedding? God. God is officiating the first wedding. And so we see it, we get this glimpse in, in really the heart behind what marriage and sexuality were intended to be. So verse 23 talks about this. It says that this was a permanency. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man, woman, permanency. Right, there's a connectedness here that happens because of what God has done. Verse 24, there's a sacrifice involved. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There's a sacrifice involved in this covenant love It's not selfish, it's sacrificial. And third, there's, verse 25, there's a vulnerability. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's really important. We're not ashamed. Why is there so much shame and guilt attached to sex in our life and our culture? It's because in many ways, God's design has been dismissed. You see, sex is not just a physical thing, but it's meant to be emotional, spiritual, mental, physical, all of you. What it is, is it's a vulnerability at the deepest level of our being. It's meant to be the sacrificial giving of oneself to another, See, why does Jesus come down so strong on sexual sin on the Sermon on the Mount? It's because he see, here, here's what it is. Here's the why. Here's the why. It's because he sees humanity taking sex and using it to hurt, abuse, manipulate, control, and take advantage of others. And Jesus, in this passage in particular, in this culture, is protecting women from the abuses of it. From the abuses of it. Friends, do you see that we live in a world that is abusing the gift, the good gift that God has given us? And today, Jesus is bringing that to bear on the people and saying, do you see it? See, let's be honest. Where's the only place you can be safe enough to be vulnerable at every level? In a permanent covenant relationship, marriage, a relationship where you are not a means to an end, but a lifelong best friend. You know, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew literature, the, there's a word, you can find it in Proverbs 2.17, that refers to a person's spouse. You know what that word is? A loop. A loop. 
And what that means is, is as it's translated, it's best friend. So my wife, who's working in the nursery right now, I turned to her this morning. I said, good morning, Aloop. Aloop. It's a person's best friend. See, that's God's design. I thought it would be this. But two, there's a distortion. It's our distortion, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus uses the term lustful intent. Lustful intent. And here's what it's not. D.A. Carson says, this is not a prohibition of the normal attraction which exists between men and women, but of the deep-seated lust which consumes and devours. Here's what it is. Lust is the distortion of love. Here's how. Lust is about pleasure. Love is about a person. In love, the other is important. and lust, I am important. This again exposes the sinfulness of our hearts and the motivations behind lust. See, what is the ugly truth about lust? It's this. First, lust views people as objects. It views people as objects. Do you see what what lust is based off of? of? It's the word looks. Who looks? Looks. In July 2016, the Washington Post put out an article entitled, Why Everyone is Miserable on Tinder. It's this dating app based off of appearance. And so in the article, it just kind of talks about how people are just so disappointed that are on this dating app. But a lot of it is based off of appearance. See, God says, you are more than your looks. You are more than your looks. Genesis 1.27 says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You are more than your looks. God created you. Beautiful in his image. So we need to understand that. But lust distorts that. Second, lust treats people as dispensable. Now, we see it in verse 28, but also if you journey further in, in, into Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Jesus talks about divorce, and he also talks about it in Matthew 19, 1 through 12. We don't have time to talk about that today, but in particular, what we see is there's a dispensableness, specifically when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, because they wrote all these different rules about reasons you could get divorced. Some of it was just you burn the food. Really, it was like, that, that was it. That's how self-indulgent it was. Indispensable they made people be. But God, in his love, says he was gonna have none of it. In 2011, sociology professors Mark Regneris um, from the University of Texas and Jeremy Euchre from Baylor University put out an important book entitled Premarital Sex in America. And what it does is it breaks down lies that we've believed and shows scientifically how they're not true. And you know, there's a dispensableness that, that lust creates. And so one of the, the, the areas that they talk about in this study is this, that pornography won't affect your relationships. I thought this was very, very insightful. It says this, they, they counter and they say pornography 
now affects virtually everyone's relationships. Here's what they say. They state three empirical reasons. First, people who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations about a a love partner or a marriage partner, what a marriage partner must look like and how they must perform. So first, unrealistic expectations. Secondly, they say a significant number of males experience a diminishing tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships and it shrinks the marriage pool for women. They say studies have proven that men who use pornography are far less interested and willing to get into the messiness of real relationships. Third, they argue women are increasingly being forced to accommodate behavior and their appearances to the image and style of pornography. And if we say that that's not true, then we are blinded by our culture. We're blinded. You see, friends, Jesus, again, is saying, here are the distortions. Here's what's happening. Here's how it's hurting people. Now, do you, do you see why Jesus comes across so strongly? He says, look at how lust damages us. Look how it distorts God's design. And again, something that Jesus will not back down on is the holiness of God and the truth of his word. So third, drastic measures. Drastic measures. Uh, Verse 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now to understand this section, we must ask two questions. These are important questions, right? These are things that Jesus is talking about here that are very important. The first one is this. Why does Jesus bring up hell? He does it in verse 29 and he does it in verse 30. See, see, for for some of us, the the mention of hell seems too drastic. But it's not. See, we must understand that hell is real and has the power to affect our lives. In 2017, Leslie uh, Schmucker wrote an article in the Gospel Coalition entitled The Uncomfortable Subject Jesus Addressed More Than Anyone Else. Here's what she says. Jesus doesn't only reference hell, He describes it in great detail. He says it is a place of eternal torment, Luke 16.23, of unquenchable fire, Mark 9.43, where the worm does not die, Mark 9.48, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, Matthew 13.42, and from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones, Luke 16.19-31. He calls hell a place of outer darkness, Matthew 25.30, comparing it to Gehenna, which was the trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abandoned, er, abounded. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. He describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. Okay, this is in there. And so what word does Jesus use to describe hell in this passage? He uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna. Tim Keller says, Gehenna gets at the idea that hell is a place of unquenchable thirst and unfulfilled longing. 
what happens to us when we take this path of lust and we trust ourselves and we say, Jesus, I got it from here. He says it will be an unquenchable thirst. An unquenchable thirst. Here's what it is. It's like living life surrounded by water in an ocean and dying of thirst. That's what it is. So lust has effects in our life now and eternally. And eternally. And so how do we deal with sin? Well, that's the second question. Jesus is now telling us that that we don't view dealing with sin drastically enough. Right? Hell's too far. But Jesus, you are asking way too much when you're talking about this other stuff here. Right? This is the hard sayings of Jesus. What do we do with this passage? Well, Jesus says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. What does he mean? Well, again, John Stott, commentator on this, says the command to get rid of troublesome eyes, hands, and feet is an example of our Lord's dramatic figures of speech. What he was abdicating was not a literal, physical, self-maiming, but a ruthless self-denial, not mutilation, but mortification, or taking up the cross. To follow Christ means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them and put them to death. That's what he's talking about here. See, what does this practically look like? Let's get this down to ground level. Here's what it means. It means when Christ comes into your life, you no longer see your eye things the way you did before. And you no longer do your hand the way things the way you did before. And here's what it's going to look like. In the eyes of the world, it's going to look like you're missing something. You're missing out on something or you're not complete. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like you're a person that's walking around with no eye or no hand to the rest of the world. Here's what the world will say. Hold on, you you don't go to those types of parties? You don't watch those movies? You, you You don't date those types of people? You don't sleep around or, or, or live together? You look like you're missing something. Like an eye or a hand is gone. And here's what it is. That's the life of a Christian. Seems drastic to the rest of the world, yet it's normal for the life of a believer. Again, this is the life of dying to myself. In the book of Colossians 3, it says this, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, That's no longer my life anymore. I have a new life. My life is Jesus Christ. Christ who is your life appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Again, consistency throughout scripture. Sexual ethic, Christianity, 
for the past 2,000 plus years. Right? This isn't new stuff. But for us, it's very difficult and it's hard. And what I want to tell you today is this. On your strength, on your ability, you can't do it. And so again, I come to you pleading, just asking that you trust in Christ and what Christ has done for you. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus and he will purify you. He will change you. He will make you new. He'll make you into a person that you never thought possible. And so quickly, some takeaways. First is this. Who is your first love? Who is your first love? There's a man named Sam Albury. He's a, he's a pastor he is single. He said he's felt called to being single his whole life because for much of his life, he struggled with same-sex attraction. And so he said, Lord, I'm gonna give this over to you. I'm gonna give this over to you. This is yours, Lord. And so here's what he says. He says this, my primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled. And this is liberating. You must fu- the most fully human and complete person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married. He was never in a romantic relationship and never had sex. If you say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, we are calling our Savior subhuman. Can you see the gospel today? Can you trust in Christ? Who is your first love? Second, would you let Jesus do surgery? God's healing many times seems too drastic for us. It looks like God's asking too much of me. But the reality is that God must do surgery in our lives in order for us to experience healing. You know what Jesus says? He says, the way is narrow. He says, the way of the world, it's It's very wide. The the way to destruction is wide. But the way to Christ is very narrow. But what is he saying? What what, what, what does that mean? It's that as you enter into this narrow door, it's this, that your life starts to open up. That your life starts to open up. As you trust Christ, you, you, you start to see your life starting to open up. But what happens when we trust ourselves and we go in that wide road, it starts to get narrow and narrow and more constricting and and more guilt and shame filled. Friends, today, would you let Jesus do surgery? Charles Spurgeon said it like this, irregular looks, unchast desires, the, the strong passions are of the very essence of adultery. And who can claim a lifelong freedom from them? Yet these are the things which defile a man. Lord, purge them out of my nature and make me pure within. Lord, purge them from my nature and make me pure within. Help me, Lord. This is not a plea to ourselves to to get our lives together, to, to, to try harder. What it is, it's a plea for the Lord to work in ways that only he can work. See, what changes our hearts to live like this? Well, we have to ask ourselves, well, how does Jesus treat adulterers? It's not a guessing game, but we know. John 8. Here's what it says. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were accusing this, or they were asking this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, what is the gospel today? It's that because of our sin, we stand guilty. We're not pure. But because of the cross and because of what Christ has done for us, because of Jesus, he stands in front of us and says, you know what? I'll be the one to take the punishment for you. You know where he did that? He took it all the way to the cross, to the cross. And he died for our sins. And he says, I'll be condemned so that you can be free. That's the gospel, friends. That's what it is. It's the great exchange. And so one of the things, and this is one of the temptations, is for us to go out there and say, I'm just gonna go change my life and I'm gonna go live this way and I'm gonna go do all this on my own strength. I, I plead with you, please, seek Christ. Seek the gospel. Ask him to change your heart. And then what happens is this. Just like this woman. Many believe it was Mary Magdalene. Woman that, that lived a life of prostitution. Now following Christ. You start to follow Christ your life has changed. You read through the lineage of Jesus, there is a lot of messed up stuff that happened in there. There was. But you know what? Jesus' grace is big enough to cover our sins. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for what it is that we learned from today's text. It's, um, it's not an easy one. It's one that comes against the grain of our culture. But that's what the Sermon on the Mount just reminds us of, Lord. We're not here to live for ourselves any longer. We're here to die to ourselves. And we are here to live a transformed life, not by our abilities, but by yours. So Lord, teach us what grace means. Teach us what the truth means. Help us to live in alignment with what you desire. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.